As, as we've already said several times this morning, this is the first Sunday of Advent. I'd like to begin by just giving you a little primer, a little reminder of what Advent actually is. Uh, the Latin adveniri is where it's taken up from. It means to come, and that, that alone is a really remarkable claim that, that kind of makes Christianity unique amongst all the other uh, religious systems or faith expressions in the world. Most will teach you that there are ways to come to God, that you go to God by uh, living a good life, and they will teach you what that looks like, or becoming more like God. Um, but the claim of the Christian is that God comes to us, that first he comes to us in humility as the Christ child to lay down his life to redeem his people from his sins, and then he will come again in the second advent in glory as our king to judge the world and to renew the new heavens and the new earth for his people. And that we, you and I, we live between those two advents. This is how we understand ourselves and our place and our world and our purpose and our work is that we live between these two advents, we look back at the first advent with gratitude as a people of gratitude for what Jesus has done, and we look forward to the second advent in anticipation as a people of anticipation for what Christ promises that he will do. And so what I want to do this morning and uh, for the next few weeks is I want to look at both advents, but I want to spend more time the next three weeks talking about this second advent. What does the Bible have to say about what is coming for us, the second advent that we look forward to? So I want to look this morning at the first advent, and then we'll spend the next three Sundays looking forward to the, net, to the, uh, to the second advent. And for the first, we're looking in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to do Galatians 3, verse 29 through 4, 7, which talks about the fullness of time, God sending forth his son. And, uh, and when we look at this text, we're really dropping into the middle of an argument. Uh, Paul gets heated. This, <laughs> I think Galatians is probably Paul at his uh, Paul's most animated state, okay? Earlier in chapter 3, he calls them foolish Galatians. That's uh, a translation for silly idiots is what he calls them. And he's arguing with them, trying to help them understand that there's nothing they need to do to win Christ's affection. They belong to Jesus by faith, and they are, we'll see it in verse 29, they are to understand themselves as heirs according to promise. We are heirs according to promise. Because of the first advent, Jesus, sin, Jesus coming to be with us, that's who we are as his people. Heirs according to promise. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 through 4, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But... When the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, it is you who came, it is you who will come again. And it is you who are with us, who sends his spirit into our hearts to cry out to our Heavenly Father. And, and so I pray that, that this would be a crying out, that you would speak to us and that we would cry out. Uh, teach us what it means that you came to redeem and you came to adopt. And I ask for your help, that I would love these friends well, that you would help me to speak clearly and lovingly. Uh, I pray that you would help, that you would encourage us, correct us, um, convict us, and, uh, and give us hope. And help me, every word I say, I pray, that it would be in fidelity to this word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was 2009, uh, BBC published an article. It was really interesting. It was about a study that was done by some German researchers on what they called the cry melody of babies, newborn babies, babies that are one or two days old. They looked, these German researchers looked at babies that were born to uh, French parents that spoke French with a French dialect, and they looked at newborn babies that were born to German parents, and they found that even after a day or two, these babies... Uh, were actually crying out in such a way that matched the intonation of their parents. Uh, especially uh, the, the intonation of the voice that they have heard for uh, more than any other voice in their life. Of course, the voice of their mother. That each baby has a cry melody. And each one uniquely is matching the voice of their mother. And the researchers all said the same thing. They said that these babies are doing this, even just one day old, they are doing this because they are crying out to one that they are looking for to form an attachment to. They come into this world looking to form the attachment to the one that they have heard from their entire life. There was a quote that was sent to me by one of you earlier this week by a guy named Kurt Thompson. It says, we are born into this world looking for someone who's looking for us. That there is a cry melody of the heart. We are looking for someone who's looking for us. And Paul writes these words telling us that Advent has a lot to say about this cry of our hearts. That we are looking for someone looking for us. He is telling the Galatians and he's telling you and he's telling me that there is someone came into this world looking for us. And, uh, the, uh, in chapter 3, before we get into this passage, he uh, has just run through about 2,000 years of Old Testament history. And what he was saying is that God is the pursuing God, that he has always been the pursuing God who pursues his people, and he's always been the God who makes promises to his people. That's who he is. And now in chapter 4, what he's telling us is that all of the promises of God that he has given to his people throughout the centuries find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. That's the argument that he's making here. And here's the flow of his argument. 
First, he shows us in the first few verses, he'll show us our need for this promise, that we are actually in need of someone to make promises to us. And then secondly, what he does is he shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises, so how the promise is fulfilled. And then finally, he tells us how we experience this promise every day for the rest of our lives. Our need for the promise, how the promise is fulfilled, and how we experience this promise, okay? So first, our need for a promise. <clears throat> he, these are confusing verses. I'll just, it is like, <laughs> it is debated over and over and over again. Verses one through f- three can be very confusing. Exactly what is he talking about? Um, but what he's doing is he's describing our need for a promise. And he's doing it by comparing the states of two very needy people, both a child and, uh, and a slave. Uh, in verse 29, he's making the argument that we're heirs according to a promise. And then in verse one, he's unpacking that for us, saying that by heir, I mean that as long as he is a child, he is no different than a slave. Now, what's going on there? Um, What what he is talking about is a fairly common phenomenon that, that existed during Greek civil life. He's talking about when a wealthy landowner Um, would assign uh, custody of the heir to certain guardians and managers. So it was very important. If you owned land or you you had an estate of some kind, you wanted to know where that estate was going. You wanted to identify the heir of that estate. And with rare exception, it was going to be, it was going to go to the oldest son. And so you did everything uh, to prepare that son to be able to inherit the estate you were giving to him. And so you put him under the custody of what Paul calls guardians and managers that manage just every part of that heir's life. So he was told when, from, the, from a very young age, he was told when he should wake up, when he should go, go to bed. He was, his diet was managed. Uh, the system of his education was managed. I mean, he, ev- everything was meant to prepare him to one day receive what was being promised to him. And what Paul is saying is that in those days, when he was under the custody of these guardians and managers, that his life, even though all of these things were coming to him, his life didn't reflect it all that much that he had about as much liberty or freedom in the house as one of the household servants. That's what Paul is saying. And we can think about this like this is kind of an old way of thinking, like I've seen that on movies, you know, at times, that kind of thing. But actually, there's, there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, in 1999. So actually, that was a while ago now. We have to consider 1999 some time ago. But Compared to biblical times, I think it's fairly recent. Uh, The Duke and Duchess of Northumberland. So Northumberland's a a northern county in uh, in England that borders Scotland. The Duke and Duchess of Northumberland actually went to court to keep their 14-year-old son, Earl Percy. What a great name. Earl Percy from inheriting the wealth of their estate until a date set by the parents. That's exactly what was going on. He, he, uh, he was set to inherit a one million pound inheritance as well as a property that generated about a half million pounds per year. Not bad. But the parents had seen British noblemen squander fortunes in truly unfortunate ways. And so they wanted to try and protect 
this young Earl Percy from, them, from himself, from his own immaturity, by setting a date, they determined it to be age 25, when he could actually come in and inherit all of this. This is something akin to what Paul is describing, how we as children are no different than a slave set under guardians and managers until a time set by the father. Now, what is the guardian or the manager? Well, if you were in uh, chapter 3 of Galatians, if you had read through it, when he unpacks all this history of God pursuing his people through a promise, Paul talks extensively about the role of the law. So God gave the law, his law, to his people through Moses. And whenever Paul mentions law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, he actually calls the law a guardian. And he's saying that he gave the law to ins- for the people's own good to protect them, to guide them, to show them how to live righteously. Uh, one of the phrases we like to use is the law is given to us for our own good. It also uh, restrains us from evil and then Paul, or restrains the work of evil in the world. And then Paul, one of the things he'll say later in chapter 3 is that there's actually limits to what, to what the law can do for us. Because what the law has done over and over and over again when God gives his people his law, it's given to us for our good, is that it shows us that we are actually lawbreakers. That it reveals to us something about ourselves that we can't escape. It is a mirror that's held up to us that shows us that. And so as good as the law was when God gave it to his people through Moses, there are actually limits, as what Paul was saying in chapter 3, there are actually limits to what the law can do for us. That we were always a people in need of a promise. Always. That was always true. And I think that we all know that in some way about ourselves. I actually don't think for any one of us, if there's kind of like, even for those of us who have a shred of like self-awareness, I think we all know that about ourselves. Whether we have studied extensively God's law or not, and we will, listen, we will next next year, we're going to hold on to your seatbelts. We're going to get into it. But listen, you all have it. Whether you know what God's law is or not, whether you've studied it deeply, what it calls out from us, you know that there are, we all have standards that we're trying to live up to. And this is one of C.S. Lewis's most basic apologetic arguments, is that we all have a, some kind of a moral compass, and there's nowhere we go in the world where we don't have standards that we live up to or are trying to live up to, whether we're at home with our families, whether we're kids or adults, whether we're at work or we're at school. I mean, everywhere we go, we are discerning what the standards are. And at the same time, we're also discerning ways that we break them. And, and, and I'll just say, this is one of the reasons that we're often anxious. It's often one of the reasons that we're, we feel burdened. It's often one of the reasons that we hide is because we're all too aware that that's true of us. That there are standards, there's a law, and that we are lawbreakers. 
The law is good in that it reveals something to us, but there are limits to what it can do, right? The the law, the giving of the law, certainly can't answer the cry of our hearts that we come into the world looking for someone that's looking for us. But the promise of love can do that. And that's why Jesus is, is meant, that's why Paul goes right to who Jesus is in verse 4. Because he is just demonstrating for us, it's like he baited the hook. He showed us our need for a promise, and then he shows us how this promise of God given to his people is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. Listen, verse 4 and 5, if you are into memorizing verses, or even if you're not, memorize those verses. And I'm going to reveal to you that I have not, because I'm going to read them out loud here. But when the fullness of time had come, remember verse 2, date set by the Father, okay? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a radiant verse that speaks to us about the promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is showing us both the process, the process by which, um, by which this promise is fulfilled, and then it names for us the promises themselves. First, the process. When the fullness of time had come, now look, a lot of people, and, and the, the, it's fine to speculate about all of this, okay? Um, and, you know, go, go ahead. That's okay. None of us actually know what, why God chose the time and the place that he sent Jesus to, that he appointed Jesus to. There are all kinds of, like, good ideas about why that would be. Uh, the state of the Greco-Roman culture, um, hearts in the world being particularly open or even longing to the message of the good news of the gospel or that the kingdom has come. Uh, all of those, there could be truth in any one of those things, but we don't actually, the, the, the point of the fullness of time had come is that God had a providential eye on the world. And that he knew, he knew when the fullness of time had come and when it was a good time and a good place, it was the right time in God's eyes to send Jesus to, uh, to come to be with us. He's saying he, God was paying attention to the world and he sent Jesus at an appointed time, a date set by the Father. And when the time came, he sends uh, his son to look like us and talk like us and experience life like us. This is what's, that's what's behind born of a woman. He's saying he came into the world just like we did, except it was a virgin birth. And it even says that he was born under the law. Now, this is, this is actually also really important because what has Paul been talking about? How, how uh, the law was given to us by God that we are all... Uh, called to obey the law. Well, what this is saying is that Jesus came and submitted himself to the law. Uh, that he's not actually, he's not actually like so many authorities that we read and we hear about who prosecute the law or, uh, or even write the law, but live like they're above the law. Listen to how radical this is. A friend put it to me earlier uh, this week this way. He said, listen, the lawgiver became the law keeper. And the fact that he 
actually kept the law perfect in his obedience to the Father, that is what that is what makes him the suitable, spotless, righteous lamb who, who was offered as the atoning sacrifice to our sins. That he's born under the law, that he's the perfect law keeper in ways that we're the lawbreaker, and he is the atoning sacrifice who goes to the cross, offering himself for the redemption of his people, for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the process outlined for you right there. What are the promises that come to God's people through Jesus Christ? There are two named in this passage. First is redemption, okay? And the second one's adoption. Both of those things. The first is redemption. Now, redemption is actually, both of those are technical words that, that Paul is using that describe something that would have been common in the day of the Galatians. Redemption was a word that was common in an ancient slave market, actually. So you could go to a slave market, and you could, if you wanted to purchase a slave, you would go to the master of the slave, and you would pay a price. You would pay, you would pay a price, and it would be said that you redeemed that slave from their master. And this language is actually really appropriate and helpful in this passage because the law, what he's saying is the law makes certain demands on us. A price must be paid, and we are redeemed because Jesus pays the price of our redemption. And so the law has no ownership of us anymore. And listen, if that were the, it has no power to condemn anymore because of what Jesus has done. That's what makes us redeemed. And if that, if that alone were what Jesus had done on our behalf, that would be a lot. I mean, that would be a lot redeeming us from our sins, paying a price that we couldn't pay for ourselves. But Paul's not done yet because the next thing he says is that we become adopted into God's family. Now, that's, a tech, that's another technical term that Paul is using. This is not just romantic language, but sonship or adoption as sons is actually a legal term that was used in that day. And you would see it happen in ancient and wealthy households where if a wealthy landowner had no heir, what they could do is they could choose an heir from, amongst, from, from somebody and, they could, and it was often one of their household slaves. They would actually adopt them into their family and they, that person would then have all of the legal and financial privileges of belonging to the estate. They actually became the inheritant of things of an estate that was promised to them with all the privileges that belonged to it. In the eyes of the law, that person became the son. And, he's, and what Paul is saying, and this is so dramatic, is that the son Jesus came to make us sons. The son Jesus came to make you a son. With all of the privileges and all of the joys and all of the freedom that comes with it. That when God the Father looks at you, he actually sees his son. That he loves and cares for and cherishes 
This is the purpose that Jesus came into the world with such love for you, his people, that he didn't just want to redeem you, but he adopted you into his family. And to to really understand the dramatic nature of our relationship with God, you need both of those things. Tim Keller puts it that way. He says, you need to understand both. To understand the language of redemption, you need to go to an ancient slave market. And to understand the language of adoption, you need to go to an ancient wealthy landowner's house to understand that both of these things belong. And sometimes we think that, uh, that, that we think of one and not the other. <clears throat> in, in my interactions with people, often I think that we, uh, we, it's a little easier for us to begin to believe that we are redeemed through you know, the forensic nature of Jesus' work, his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. But I think it's actually harder for many of us to believe that we're adopted. Like, like we're forgiven, but it's a grudging forgiveness. And, and we're left now to start over a new life where we now are beginning to try and earn God's approval. But to understand the dramatic nature of the promise that's given to you, you need to understand that you were both redeemed and you are adopted. And neither of those things are ever going to be taken away from you. That's the dramatic nature of this promise given to you. And it tells you, it tells you something about how today's life should look for you, how to understand, how to experience in the present as we live between the first advent and the second advent. It is telling us how we can experience this promise that's given to us today. What does he say? Because you are sons... Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. J.I. Packer, some of you know that name. He wrote a book called Knowing God, which is great. But the truth is, is he's written a lot uh, and uh, he's taught a lot. He is a a true theologian and uh, academic. Not kidding, he taught until he was 90 years old and had to retire because his eyesight was failing. Like that, okay? Like that, that's him. And he died just, when did he, I think he died just a few years ago at 94 years old. And uh, he had this to say. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion. If you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything, everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Listen, when Carolyn prayed about our knowing our Heavenly Father, that wasn't planned. I don't know if she planned that. I didn't plan that. It just kind of dovetailed nicely with the passage. But um, one of the ways it can be hard for us to understand just how good God is a Father to us is that, you know, all of us have the experience of, a, of having a broken Father in some way, right? All of it, like none of us, 
know what it's like to look at our father and call him perfect. And some of us have had really difficult experiences with our father. And some of us have fathers that we love and love us. But even then, they're not, you know, like all of us have this kind of uh, 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 a distorted, in some ways, image of what it means to have a true, perfect, heavenly father. But all of us know, all of us know what it looks like to long for the perfect heavenly father. And and what the Holy Spirit teaches us to pray isn't just father, but Abba father. Abba is kinship language. It's intimate language. It's like when, uh, when, um, it's like when you call your father papa or daddy. You know, the only person in all of scripture who cries Abba father, you know who that is? It's Jesus Christ himself. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You see that? It's like this intimacy and trusting language. And we experience the promise that's given to us through Jesus Christ is by praying intimately and trustingly to our Heavenly Father who has adopted us into his family and is the perfect Father that we all long for. That's how we experience it. We, we echo the cry melody that was given to us. Looking for someone who's looking for us. Earlier this week, a friend of mine introduced me to a song that came out not too long ago by Sufjan Stevens. Some of you love Sufjan, some of you don't, and that's okay. You can listen to this anyway. Uh, I read an article on this song, and the first line read, here's a song by Sufjan that might make you cry before you even listen to it. And the title of the song is this, Will Anybody Ever Love Me? And in it, he asks the same question over and over again. That's the question he asks, will anybody ever love me? Will anybody ever love me? It's a cry of the heart. Not for sport, not without, not for sport without grumbling, will anybody ever love me? For good reason, in every season, will anybody ever love me? And he says his heart burns wanting to know the answer to that question. Will anybody ever love me? That's a cry of the soul. And it's a cry of the heart that we're to all too familiar with. It's a cry of a child that's entering into the world looking for someone who's looking for them. And the answer that God gives you in Jesus Christ is yes. Yes. Somebody loves you. In eternity past and in eternity future, that question is answered yes. In Jesus Christ, yes. There is someone who loves you. Not for what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Somebody loves you, has always loved you, and won't stop loving you. That's the question Advent answers for you and for me. Amen. Let me pray. O you lover of our soul. Would you speak the truth of the goodness of Jesus to our hearts now? Tell us of your love. 
Help us to rest in your promises. That in you, Lord Jesus, we find, we truly find rest for our souls. I pray that you would help us. Help us to rest. Let this Advent season be a time of rest for us. Resting in your love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.